Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Whether you're a brand, large business, small business, or an individual, you need customers. And the chances are some of your potential customers are probably listening to this podcast right now. From history... When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year... Politics... If that person is poor, it's a bad neighbourhood. Then you have the disproportionate police brutality, which is meted out instantly at people of colour. Culture... Had they written it that Chris called an ambulance for hours straight away, we wouldn't have learned about the severity of alcohol withdrawal either. Well done to the writers. Thank you for making a wonderful podcast, but I'd give rather a miss. Very. <laughs> <laughs> the Rotherham Tourist Board. Geekdom. The flag is a graphic symbol, not a verbal symbol. You know, why don't we just write France on the flag? I mean, we laugh when you think of putting a country's name on a flag. Society or music. Young people began to turn away from their parents' ethics and their style of dress and they began to dance to a new type of music. Royfield Brown's podcasts are downloaded just under 100,000 times a month. So putting your message here could well be worth it. If you have something to sell or promote, why not email royfield at gmail.com and hear your product or service promoted. It was the best of times. It was the worst she was the people's princess. She'll fight on the beaches. Away, man. These are the things that made England. She'll fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello and welcome to the Things That Made England. Uh, This is the show where we select um, anything from a number of topics and decide whether it is a worthy thing that has made England the country it is today. And today with me I have Mr David Crowther. David, please introduce yourself. Uh, My name is David Crowther and I am a podcaster and I apologise for that. 
Yes, and unfortunately, we're not joined today by um, our uh, colleague uh, Royfield Brown because he's decided that he's celebrating some something that goes on in America uh, around the end of November. I can't remember really what it is. He's eating that very thoroughly British meal, uh, roast turkey. Oh, yeah, I still remember what it's about. It's uh, it's about our celebration of getting rid of a bunch of lemon suckers. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. People yeah. disapprove of everything. Yes, and we get to party. We and we get to party like like a picture of John Calvin, what somebody once posted on Twitter and said, uh, "This is John Calvin, and whatever you're doing, he doesn't approve." <laughs> Excellent. That's always quite a good uh, historical joke on Twitter. Anyway, so I'm going to do uh, Luke. I am going to do the British Constitution. Mm. Uh, you might notice that this is a programme called The Things That Made England. And I'd like at this point to invoke uh, Rule 34B, which actually we've invoked in pretty much every episode, which is, although that it's clearly British constitution now, it has a deep impact on England, and therefore it can count as a thing that made England, even if uh, it's developed under a British flag for some of its life at least. Do you accept my invocation of Rule 34B? I very much do. I think that makes absolute sense and we'll um, be able to play a lot, play along with that. Excellent. Uh, you're most compliant. So look, um, <laughs> what you're going to get tonight, everybody, just so you're aware, is a long, boring history lesson from me. And then two minutes of questions and debate at the end. And then we can all let you go to bed. All right. Yes, I'm not going to be saying an awful lot on this one because my knowledge of the British Constitution is extremely limited. Uh, so you're flying alone there, Anne. Well, that is actually quite interesting because, you know, there was during all the Brexit debate or whatever it was, one of those things, there was a, a poll of the British where the question was asked, do you think that your MP, what you have just elected, ought to A do exactly what you tell them to do at any given point or B, behave in the best interests of the, all the constituencies when they are in Parliament. Which, what is the right answer for a representative democracy, Luke? I, I think, I hopefully I know this one. B. Yes, correct. Do you know how many, what percentage of people said B as opposed to A? Uh, 50. God, like 17. Yeah, 17% understood the very basis of their democracy. That is slightly troubling, isn't it? Now, look, so do you tell me, uh, Luke, if I may call you Luke, what your, um, I suppose, Mr. Baxter, what are your um, what are your preconceptions about the British Constitution? Give me three things. It all started with the Magna Carta and that was the basis for everything. Okay. Um. It's not written down anywhere. Uh huh. And we're a monarchy. Yeah. Okay. A constitutional monarchy, right? Okay. Well, let's come back to those themes. They're all good ones. So we, we. I mean, you're absolutely right. We tend to trace the origin of our uh, parliamentary democracy to Magna Carta, which is um, what year? I should, if to give you a clue, it's around about lunchtime. Twelve fourteen. Twelve fifteen, actually, but yes, indeed, you have oh. lunch a minute a minute later than me. Um, <laughs> I was like that joke. Magna Carta was still running running me twelve fifteen, just around about lunchtime. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> so look, we uh, we tend to trace it back to Magna Carta. 
But in actual fact, it, there are signs a little bit early of the basis of monarchy is that the Lord and the basis of lordship, and this is not just Germanic, this is everywhere, Celtic in particular, um, in Germanic lordship, it tends to be around about territory, that the, the, the Lord owns the land um, and the Lord owns the land. So let's not have any of this stuff about, oh, you know, we've got a right, we've got rights in it. Just doesn't exist. I mean, there is a, a theoretical elective element of Germanic lordship, but really, just like in Cal Celtic lordship, you own the people. But why do you say Germanic? Because it's Anglo-Saxon based. Yes, essentially, our traditions trace back more to to Germanic rather than Celtic. But obviously, mm. Celtic is very important. Wales and Ireland and parts of Scotland, and um, that model of lordship. And many models of lordship are about the ownership of people rather than the ownership of land. The sept, the clan, owns the land. Um, so that's the same in Africa and South America, I believe. So the concept of us thinking now that actually it's about justice and um, you know rights of the people and consent and everybody's got to say, and that just doesn't exist. There is a requirement on, so there's a coronation oath under Edgar in the 10th century, where the king has got some responsibilities. They have to govern wisely, they have to protect the church, um, and they have to consult. But there is no requirement to govern according to the will of the people or, any, or with any restraint. So the first example we have of some restraint is actually because that is sort of one of the myths about it, that the sort of Anglo-Saxon Witan was a bit more democratic than you know the Normans that followed. Yeah, indeed. And that, that is a major myth, Victorian myth, that, you know, the Norman yoke, the removal of Anglo-Saxon liberty. And really, it's largely tripe. Nobody's really sure if the, if the Witan actually exists. But if it did, it's like a precursor to the Magnum Concilium of the Normans, which is the king consulting with his great men and the king being part of a court with the great men, which is a, in fact, a law court that brings judgment as well as a court of governance. So even if it did exist, and clearly Anglo-Saxon kings consult with their great men, it's not a representative assembly in any way. In 1014, actually, uh, there is the first sign. Do you know who was king in 1014? Ethelred the Unready. He gets kicked out by Canute and makes a comeback. And there is a very famous couple of lines in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle which says Ethelred, along the lines of the Ethelred, promised to rule in accordance with the laws of the land. And that's the first indication, really, of a king promising to be bound by some kind of rules. But, of course... It's really Magna Carta. I mean, there's a lot of, in Henry II's time, there's an awful lot of legal changes, which are very interested and interesting. If you're, you know, if you've had about 10 pints on a, on a Saturday night, they're, they're compelling. But if you haven't, really, they're not. 1215 Magna Carta. <laughs> now then, what is Magna Carta, Luke? It's just a peace treaty between the king and the barons after a civil war. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So um, there's, all, there's that question which goes around for ages saying, oh, Magna Carta is the cornerstone of our liberty. But its genesis was nothing to do with that. The lords were not thinking about the future. They were not thinking about a constitution 
nor were they thinking generally, although there's a bit of an exception to this, about their fellow citizens, their fellow subjects. They had a bunch of feudal complaints, including the excessive use, for, for example, of fish weirs on the River Thames, a provision which I think lasts <laughs> until about the 1970s, actually. Um, and they wanted to sort all those out and define them. So, for example, the king could not coerce a woman into getting married. They set a particular fee for a, a new an heir coming into their wardship. Feudal stuff. But there are a couple of reasons to take that analysis with a pinch of salt. I mean, people love saying it. Historians love saying it because they love saying things which debunk myths. But there are a couple That's of reasons to argue. That's what you told me to say. Is that right? Sure. Sorry, sorry. And actually, strangely attractive, Luke. You know, for a moment I was aroused, and now you've just you've just flown it. <laughs> anyway, um, because actually, Magna Carta, there are a couple of exceptional things in it. Actually, and actually, one of the principles in Magna Carta that is very strong is the principle that uh, process must precede judgment. In many societies. There's none of that. There is uh, the, the king decides you're going to slam you in jail. The king slams you in jail and that's that or executes you or whatever it might be. So, I mean, that is a really important clause. Clause 38, I think, or clause 49. No free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any way, nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so except by lawful judgment of his equals and the law of the land. And then clause 40 is to no one will we sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. So those are two big clauses hmm. of Magna Carta. And 39, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned, blah, 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 is also important because in about five places, basically the your naysayers about Magna Carta say, oh, come on, look, this is just a load of Aristos stitching up things with the king because they're hacked, hacked off with him. And he's, you know, King John has been a tyrant. It's got nothing to do with the rest of us. But it's not actually true. And in fact, I mean, 85% of the population is excluded from Magna Carta because 85% of the population is not free, but uh, they're bondsmen, mm. they're serfs. But it does say no free man. Uh, so it talks about free men, not nobles. And that's exceptional in European history. Not until the Golden Bull of 1350 is there another, another example of that. All the other agreements of any kind of similarity are with aristocracy. So there is, there is in Magna Carta stuff which will become important. And very quickly, because I've warbled too long, there's another clause which sets up the principle of a council of 25 barons who will monitor the implementation of Magna Carta. Now, that's got rid of by within months. But that's a, really, that's a principle of saying, look, the king is not above the law. Even if the king, mm. the big big paradox, of course, is that the king makes the law in 1215. Uh, so how can the king be above the stuff he promulgates? Nonetheless, in principle, here is a statement that the king is not above the law. So there we go. Nonetheless, it's a peace treaty. 90% of it is about sorting out feudal Jews. So a wrap. But then Magna Carta is incredibly important in the future because it's rather opaque, actually. And well, first of all, it gets reissued. It becomes a touchstone over the next hundred years. Or whenever the king's in trouble or the barons are cross with him, they say, right, you reissue Magna Carta. 
and you say you're going to work by that again. So it becomes a touchstone of an agreement, of a set of rules that the king's going to abide by. Secondly, because it's rather opaque and vague and all the rest of it, and in vagueness lies, lies freedom. Precision is a disaster in any walk of life except possibly science. Vagueness <coughs> rule. And because it's so vague, people put things about, uh, on it. So in, ni- in, in the 1970s, a couple of very famous historians, I think it's Holt and Bog- Bogdaner, had two completely different interpretations of the same clause. So how is everybody else expected to know exactly what they mean? So in the 17th century, in the Civil War, uh, honest John Lilburn says Magna Carta is the basis of our liberty, and it, it does these things. There's a very famous jurist called Edmund Cook, whose name is spelled C-O-C-O-K-E, and therefore everybody calls him Edmund Coke. And if anybody says that, you need to, uh, you know, you need to, to glass him. Um, well, that's probably a bit ex- extreme, to be honest. Maybe. And he says, yeah. you know, look, maybe yes, that Magna Carta is the basis of our liberties. Um, it is the statement that the king is not above the law. A lot of that is tripe, but it begin it means something to people. So in 1610, the Charter of Virginia, for example, is based around Magna Carta. There are several clauses in the American Constitution which clearly um, owe their genesis to Magna Carta. And in America, I think, I mean, Americans can get in touch with us and uh, tell me I'm wrong. But actually, the reverence in in America for Magna Carta is far higher than it is in Loughborough, for example. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I mean, this is perhaps something I should have asked uh, right from the beginning. But what, I mean, what defines a constitution? Because, you know, what is the difference between a Ma- Magna Carta, which is a charter, which really feels like just a set of laws, um, and something that could be described as a constitution? Well, it's a very interesting question. I do not know the answer, but I would guess and say people set out to write a constitution, don't they? And at the moment, Chile, I think, is actually rewriting its constitution. And there's a very... Yeah well-defined process around doing that. You know, it's a convention. Okay, so that's Magna Carta. I've warbled enough about that. Then one tends to jump to 1258. The Montfort. Indeed. This is a quiz more than a show. It is, isn't it? Well, I'm trying to get some interactivity (laughs) again, darling. No, no, it's very good. (laughs) Okay, thank you. At least I'm, you know, I'm trying. So the provisions of Oxford, basically, Simon de Montfort, um, gets the barons together against the king who's Henry III is not as bad a king as John, but he is bumbling. And in 1258, the provisions of Oxford again confirm that the king is subject to the law, that appointments by the king to official positions must be made in consultation with a council of barons, which is revolutionary because the king was free to appoint whoever he wanted to. That's the mm. principle of all his ministers. And the inclusion of a populace, the free population as a whole. And of course, by 1600, well, by 1550, all Englishmen are free. There are no more serfs in, in England. So it becomes the free man becomes more and more relevant. And Simon de Montfort, I mean, he's a bit of a sort of mythical character as well i mean he's like the sort of first democrat and the the, the lover of freedom and how, how much of that is true 
It's a very difficult question because Simon Wolf was a very aristocratic, belie- mm. big believer in aristocracy and a very difficult man. But he puts this stuff in. You know, he also believes that this is about the free men as a whole. He is the one who insists on the promulgation, the first promulgation of Parliament. And Parliament, representation in Parliament, includes all three estates, the estates being the clergy, the nobility, and the towns and common men. <laughs> so this is it. This is the invention of Parliament. And it's the Scots try to argue that they did it first, but you know, really they didn't. And why is that the invention of Parliament? Because suddenly the king has to have his appointments approved. It's the role of Parliament is is several fold. So it is to the opportunity for the people to present petitions. The presenting of the mm. petitions is crucial, actually, because it starts off people presenting petitions to the king and the king saying, OK, right, we'll go away and I'll, I'll either make some statute law or I won't. Um, so that is the process whereby lawmaking begins to be centred in Parliament. And there is this principle of British constitution about the king in Parliament, which will become much more relevant under the Tudors, we'll come back to. And as we get, they go by, the, the making of statutes becomes much more political. So there's an occasion with his son, Edward I, where rather than the commons going and saying, right, okay, you ask for taxation, and I'm terribly sorry, of course, the main thing about Parliament is the king cannot yeah, make extraordinary taxation without Parliament. That's the biggest thing. He can collect his feudal dues, uh, he can collect revenue from the crown lands, but he can't tax the people without their consent. This thing of petitioning gets to where the commons actually begin to say, well, look, okay, king, rather than us voting on on taxation and then presenting our petitions, we're going to present these petitions. And if you say okay to them, well, then we might grant you your taxation. So gradually that power relationship begins to change and it becomes a, a negotiable and it's a slow process but that's one of the methods by which the balance of power between king and the commons changes under edward the first you get a lot of uh, legal changes um so the statute of westminster 1275 amends the first has the first major statutes which are specifically designed to amend common law made in assemblies which can be described as parliament um so now parliament is the lawmaking body before the king could just make the law he could do a proper proclamation right. and hey hey so there it is now he can't and that there's a lot of argument about that and although there isn't a civil war it gets quite close actually uh, under Edward I. And sorry, so, the, the, so that's, would they have been, would they have had to, because, so Simon de Montfort lost that that civil war and he, I mean, the, the statutes of Oxford, did they stay in place even though he was, you know, well, killed by Edward I? Yeah. Wasn't he? Many of them did. Many of them did. Right. So uh, basically Edward I, I mean, although he, I mean, he basically, uh, he gets Simon de Montfort and he cuts his ghoulies off and, and kills mm. him and sticks him in, sticks ghoulies in his mouth. And, he, you know, he's not a gentleman, our Edward I, but then, you know, you're a mock Scot, so you know that. I've, I've seen, I've seen Bravehearts. Yeah, I know all about that. Point. Yeah. 
but many of the provisions of Oxford remain because, in general, there is a kind of myth about medieval history and actually general history, the development of, of the British Constitution, very much a Victorian thing, actually, a Whig thing, which is that this is a process of struggle over the ages where the king gives a little bit, the barons make a fuss, the good people of England force a few concessions out of the king and that there's a, it's a general continuous fight for freedom which ends up in the glory of the British constitution and as John Bright said the mother of all parliaments it's really tribe actually a it's very teleological you know you're looking at the end point and <laughs> reading backwards you know it's up and down it's forward back forward back and also yeah. the barons did not want to clip the wings of the king. Almost at no point do they want to do that. What they want to do is for the king to govern well. So if you think about Magna Carta, we will not, de we will not deny justice. That's not a sign that they want to restrain the king. They want more royal justice. It's absolutely implicit in that clause. So this thing about it being a struggle between the people and the king for more power and being a gradual process is wrong. The, the barons are looking to work more effectively and retain the king. So many of the provisions survive because Edward sees actually that they're reasonable complaints by the barons. So where are we? We must move on because I'm being deeply, deeply dull. Um, there are moments which you don't really notice. So Edward II, for example... It's very interesting. There are some ordinances in 1311 which talk about um, restrictions on the rights of the king, subject to the, uh, the aristocracy. One of the crucial things about that is everybody gets really hacked off with Edward II because he's really good at digging ditches, but he's rubbish at being a king. And so they game in a room and they say they're going to depose this king. And actually, you know, Edward II is deposed. This is a radical thing, you know, deposing a king, God's anointed. And what? how do they get around this? They get around this by saying, well, look, we're not deposing the king. We are deposing this chap called Edward Plantagenet. There right. is a difference between the king in his role and the biological king. So there are these two things within the same same person and actually in 1327 with the deposition of edward ii what the way it's put is that parliament said that the king had been deposed by the will of the people so by the 14th century you've got that concept of the will of the people and the will of the people being somehow superior now it doesn't to to the king that's an incredibly radical concept it gets lost a bit in edward ii actually but it comes up again in some very famous legal texts by Fortescue in the 15th century. He claims that it's the will of the people that is sovereign. And that's quite a concept. I mean, people still argue about it. It's the rubbish kings that do a power of good for our, our, our freedoms and our constitution. If it's John Henry III. Yeah. I mean, even Edward I, yeah. who we see if, uh, as a very powerful king, an effective king, even he... The, all the changes happen when he begins to when he has a bad patch, as it were. And is that with Edward the First? Would that be tied back to the the, the taxation issue? Was it because he was fighting so many wars exactly. that he was more in hoc to Very Parliament? Good. Uh, absolutely right. Yeah. So he's fighting a war in France. He's fighting a war in Scotland. He's just spent vast amounts of money building castles in Wales, uh, and he's skint. 
And let's get to 1376. And the good parliament, Edward III, as you know, is one of our greatest kings. Nobody killed more French people. Tops. The good parliament in 1376. So this is when the king is in his dying days. He's he's basically infirm. Uh, he's dominated by his mistress, Alice Perez. Um, and the good parliament, what emerges there is a chap called Peter de la Mer, I think, who is our per- first speaker of parliament, establishes the, com- the right of the commons to impeach the king's ministers. They also have a speaker. So the absolute fundamental role in the operation of parliament, the speaker that is neither of, of any no party and is a representative of the commons. And the commons coming out of the shadow of the Lord as an independent body. And that's really interesting about the British Constitution is the bicameral nature of Parliament, which is, again, I think pretty unique. That gives the commons more freedom to be independent of the power of the Lords. But even at that stage, does it have that sort of bicameral nature where... Um, the the Commons would be proposing laws I think Lords and the, the Lords approving propose it. Lords. In fact, I think even the King can. Uh, but the point is that these people sit separately. The Commons isn't an election process. It's a selection process. So in the shires, the magnates will sit down and say, oh, I, I think it's my turn to appoint the representative that goes. I think we'll have Sir Alan. Uh, and they go along and they say, you're going to be elected. So we're not talking democracy here. We are talking, the magnates are still all powerful and they're electing their interest. Nonetheless, the commons here in the good parliament is making decisions that the lords hate. So what do we go to next? Well, of course, Tudors. Let's have Henry VIII. So everybody moans about the fact that we all do Tudors, don't they? And uh, when we when we talk about the British Empire, no doubt we'll talk about the fact that, yeah. oh, we don't talk about the British Empire enough. Why do we always talk about the Tudors? Uh, uh, actually, I didn't do the Tudors at all when I was at school. I did eight years, that's <laughs> four years of the British Empire, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. Anyway, but the point about Tudors is that the Tudors is critical to the formation of the British state. There is no more crucial period as it may be the 19th century. But even then, this lays the groundwork. In the Tudor time, the act of supremacy, the break with Rome and the reformation of church is all done through parliament. Suddenly, the authority of lawmaking and the authority of the the English state is the king in parliament. And actually, Henry even says this himself. People talk hysterically about Henry VIII as being this horrible tyrant and all the rest of it. Henry VIII wasn't a tyrant. Everything he did, he did through Parliament, and he accepted that he's never more powerful, he says, than when I am the king in Parliament. So it's just this concept of the two working together, it's no longer that the fount of all law is the king, it's no, the authority of law is the king in Parliament, not the king separately, or indeed the Parliament yet separately. Parliament is not yet sovereign. Is he literally in Parliament? Yeah. Um, yes. Does he sit in Parliament? Kings still go to Parliament. I mean, they, they don't go all the time. But they certainly open Parliament with a speech, or actually they get their Chancellor or the Archbishop of Canterbury to open Parliament. But they can go, you know, there's none of this black rod stuff. That doesn't appear until the Civil War. Yeah. One can I have one more question. Yeah. During the whole Brexit thing, um, they spoke a lot about invoking the sort of power of Henry VIII. What what would that be when you know when the executive can sort of stamp absolute power? Yeah, I can't I can't remember what that was about. 
In Henry VIII's time, it was also the primacy of statute was then it was established. So the king can still make pro- proclamations, actually, but actually, even Henry rarely uses proclamation for purely administrative stuff. Statute law is now supreme. That's the exact point about the, the Brexit thing. It was the proclamations uh, that they were using. There was something that Henry VIII did, but uh, other people didn't. So then, can we must hop forward? Um, haven't, we, haven't we skipped Wales? Uh, we have skipped Wales, 1542. Cromwell takes a policy in Wales, which actually will be quite successful, as it won't be in Ireland, which is to say, well, look, uh, we need to bring this kingdom together. And what we need to do is remove all the funny franchises. So you've got marcher lords who are sitting around, you know, when the king's does not mm. run in their lands. You've got you've got the Palatine of Chester where the king's doesn't run. You've got the Palatine of Durham where the king's writ doesn't run. This is all pants. What we need is a single nation state. And that is a process that which is European-wide. Interestingly, James VI of Scotland mm. also copies this and tries to ban... Gaelic as a language. Actually, the Scottish Parliament tries to ban uh, Gaelic as a language. And they send a whole load of lowland Scots to places like Lewis to try and settle it with uh, non-Highland and Island people, good, solid, honest lowland Scots. And there is this process. And in Spain, the, the Moriscos are butchered. About, I think about 92,000 of them get um, cancelled. In France, they've got this problem with Huguenots, but essentially... The, in the ancient ancien regime, they're trying to create one single state. There's this process of nation building and creating more taxation to carry out the Valois-Habsburg wars. So there's a general European movement towards state formation. And the Tudor times is when that really happens and you get this sense of patriotism towards England. England is a thing. There is a public space where... where England is discussed and politics are discussed, which is quite new. Happens a little bit in the Wars of the Roses when everybody gets behind Warwick the Kingmaker. But with printing and with chapbooks and ballads and news broadsheets, this public space is a part of that nation formation which the uh, Tudors really focus on. Uh, Is that boring enough? No. Good. Keep going. Quite cool. Anyway, we're talking about Wales. Sorry, 1542. Cromwell wants to create a single nation state, as does his boss. And therefore, the the acts in 1542 bring Wales into a united kingdom with England. The Welsh laws of Hewildar are replaced, cancelled, and the legal processes happen in English. The English don't try to suppress the Welsh language or anything like that. But it's just that the operation of law is in English. Do they never try and suppress the Welsh language? No, it's an interesting debate, this, because, of course, the English get accused of everything, of course. Um, I said slightly bitterly, and a lot of it is just tribe. So, you know, the Wales, I guess, because of the War of 1284 um, and conquest, can always complain that, you know, their freedom's taken away and all the rest of it with some justice, you know, because they were conquered. Um, and this is part of that. But natural fact, and a, a Welshman can tell me I'm all wrong, but the relationship between... Welsh women will, I think. Sorry, Welsh women, yeah, probably Fiona. But the relationship is much more cordial <laughs> and successful than it is in Ireland. Scotland's a different case, obviously, because they're an independent nation who decide to join a union. 
But part of that is in the Reformation, that in Wales, a, a, Gaelic, a Gaelic version of the Bible and the Catechism are produced, and Protestantism therefore succeeds in Wales. And there's a, there's a gentry which grows up in Wales, which finds advantage in being united with, with England. So although I'm, I'm sure the Welsh always resent, you know, the fact that they live back to such such a big neighbour and, you know, they're, they're lost in the constitutional process because they're so much smaller and because they were conquered and because the Lords of Hewildar were cancelled. There's all that stuff to deal with. In terms of language, there are there are some events where English employers, so like Port Albert and the, the steelworks and the coal works, where I am told employers refuse to allow people to speak Welsh because they're worried that they're plotting, right. you know, strikes and all the rest of it. And I think in schools, um, therefore, many young, many children are, you know, forced not to speak Welsh. But like, it's the same in Ireland and Scotland, actually. Mm. The uh, Gaelic and Gaelic languages begins to fail to do, do a degree because you can get a, you need to speak English to get a job properly in in the lowlands and the in, in, in industry in Ireland the Catholic Church works very hard to suppress Gaelic never at any point does the British Parliament legislate to stop people speaking local languages so unlike Indeed. Catalan or Basque Indeed. you heard it here yeah. first um, one of the many uh, false accusations to be made against the poor old English. 1628 then, Charlie won, too short to be king. Fantastic joke, isn't it? What, what was that? Monty Python, <laughs> the king, started, yeah. started the reign at f- uh, five foot eight and ended the reign at four foot eight or something. Very funny. Anyway, the petition of rights, 1628, yeah. ruled that the king could not, by prerogative alone, levy taxation in prison without trial or billet troops or impose martial law. So billeting troops, uh, martial law is critical, but billing, billeting troops as well. In France, Louis XIV basically rubs out Protestantism, the Huguenots, partly by killing them, partly by forcing them, but partly by billeting troops on them. So you you if install a bunch of roughneck soldiers uh, who could die at any time on a family, and they can do anything with that family. So Louis uses that technique to basically say to Protestants, look, if you're a Protestant, you'll get troops billeted on you and they'll ruin your life and destroy your finances. Or you can be a Catholic, in which case you won't have troops billeted on you. So it's not a small issue, billeting troops. So the Charles says, hey, this sucks. And you get the personal rule where he doesn't call parliament for how many years it is, 11 years or whatever. The Civil War is rather interesting, or the Civil Wars, as one must call them. Uh, I'm not allowed to exclude the Scots and the Irish from the conversation, for good reason, actually. You could certainly go far enough and say that without the Scots and the Irish, there wouldn't have, there might not have been an English Civil War. The English might not have had the money and um, the strength to rebel against it. the king. So it is, you know, the War of the Three Kingdoms is a relevant way of talking about it. So look, um, you get the ship money case, local lad, uh, John Hamden, who uh, refuses to pay ship tax and that actually sinks the ship tax, actually, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, John Hamden gets married to a to local lass here in, in a place called Purton, which is just down the road from my hood. Anyway, I don't want my talk about John Hamden. He's one of those famous figures of English independence. But you've never heard of him, have you? 
and he was, he was a, important in the shipping trade in Oxfordshire. <laughs> yes, indeed. No, he's a lawyer, actually, in Aylesbury. Aylesbury? Aylesbury, a seven-gated Aylesbury. But just down the road? Yes, indeed, just down the road, cheap for jail. I don't think seven. No. It's, was it Thebes yeah. that was seven-gated, or was just many-gated? Anyway, forget it. So... Uh, so then you get the whole shebang about the English Revolution, Civil War, whatever you call it, and Oliver Cromwell, the most enigmatic figure in, in English history. What comes out of it? What comes out of the Civil War? All the the changes that happen up to 1641 are all change, are all accepted by Charles II and remain in place. But, you know, it's not really a hill of beans, those changes. I mean, there are things like the abolition of um, Star Chamber, for example. So there are some achievements, but really, you wouldn't have, you know, let a million, a quarter of a million people die for the for the purposes of that. There are two things really that there are four things because you never expect the Spanish. <laughs> One is the extraordinary flowering of debate that comes with the civil wars. The extraordinary ideas, the the Putney debates, the yeah, the Putney debate. John Harrison says the yeah. the meanest he has, just as the greatest he has a life to live. This idea of one man one vote that you get from the levelers, no, not um, but property holders. It's worth saying, you know, this extraordinary flowering of ideas and debate, which never really go away. There's a quote I threw at you earlier that the French in 1789 take benzedrine. And uh, some historian, clever historian, said that. And they just keep on, you know, throughout the 19th century, they keep having rebellions because they can't get away <laughs> from the habit. Well, the habit of debate, even though censorship comes back on the rest, so that, that never goes away again. There is now a very strong public space space in England. That's a really, really interesting... Uh, I, I'd never thought of it from that point of view, that even though they didn't win anything, it was actually sort of broadened the mind and it was actually made people understand that these things yes, could be indeed, possible. indeed, the ideas that you get... Uh, and I think the influence of the um, English Revolution actually is always rather underplayed. That here is the first time. I mean, there, there are you know there are writings and all the rest of it and ideas that people have and Fortescue and all the rest of it. But these things are public, you know, especially in London. This is the first time when people have really gone around saying, "Hey, do you think?" Everybody ought to have the vote as long as they've got some property. Hey, do you think? But there's this massive flowering of ideas and all the you know, the Quaker stuff. And, and the diggers. I mean, a lot of yes. what the diggers were proposing, I think, is relevant to, to today with yes. you know, climate change, etc. Absolutely. Yes, a different way of life, yeah. a different form of society, whereas society had, was incredibly um, conservative. And actual fact, in Britain, I think, mm. you do lose some of that radicalism. You know, it, um, Britain remains a very hierarchical society, it's got to be said. The second thing that comes out of it is that we have, this is the only time we have a written constitution, the heads of agreement written by uh, Henry Ireton, amongst others, Cromwell's um, son-in-law. Um, so, you know, a lot, lot of good that did us. But that's quite interesting then. So, so the, we have had a written constitution. Hmm. Instruments of government, actually, I think it's called. And then the trial of the king, of course, we chopped the king's head off. It wasn't done in a corner, as Cromwell famously said. Uh, we didn't shove a hot, red-hot iron poker up his backside. Uh, we didn't starve him to death like Richard II in secret. We stood in front of the world and said, we believe 
this king is subject to the law and has done wrong and should suffer the consequences of his actions. And wow, you know, that's a big thing. So and if essentially that establishes the principle that all power now rests with the commons, or at least that is what is asserted um, in that process, that the commons is sovereign. I'm not sure that you say it well, that, that, but that is a, a absolutely fundamental principle of modern constitution in the Britain that Parliament is sovereign, and there's a whole lot of problems with that. But anyway, so look, I've got to get on with it because it's just boring as hell. So set, the 1660 settlement of Charles II when he came back, Declaration Breeder and all the rest of it, most of which he sort of reneges on or it gets reneged on in some ways. In 1679, you get the Habeas Corpus Acts, which extends an act in 1640. Um, so it's one of the things that comes out of this, uh, the Civil War. There was something else. There was the fourth thing of the Spanish information. Oh, yes, the last thing, ironically, is that for the first time in English history, the, the government, the executive, is properly resourced. So we went to war because we thought the king was being a tyrant and trying to exact all these weird taxes out of us. By the end of uh, the Civil War, taxation was way higher than it had been. Because one of the problems is that the English were too mean to give their king enough money to govern properly. And the Civil War sorts that one out, uh, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? Anyway, there you go. 1689, Bill of Rights, raising of the revenues of the Crown, required a grant of Parliament again. Uh, there's the Act of Toleration in 69, which gives freedom of worship to those who took the oath of supremacy and allegiance. Now, it's interesting because, of course, it remains true that there is Catholic persecution, but that persecution and that persecution is about taking high office and that that remains in place. But in terms of Catholics practicing their religion, persecution is, is over effectively by the Act of Toleration. It doesn't say it in the Act. It only gives uh, gives it to people who make a declaration denying transubstantiation is the wording. But what it basically says is nobody is going to prosecute Catholics for practicing their religion or anybody for practicing their religion. It is a dead letter. There is still, but they still can't. They still can't hold positions, or they can't. You know, they still can't. They still can't have anything legal. Yeah. So there is a level of persecution, yeah. but it's a it's a very far cry now from the 16th century. You you don't get Catholics persecuted simply for practicing their religion. Queen Anne's very interesting constitutionally. She because they want to make changes, and what happens is Anne agrees to use her prerogative to create loads of peers to get acts of, from, from the commons through the lords. And you get a precedent then, which is you. When are we getting the, the glor glorious revolution? Isn't this round now? Oh, I've just I've just hopped over the oh, glorious revolution, actually. It's going to be a bit um, more glorious than that. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, that happens. Is it, well, you know, is it really glorious? Not, um, apparently not. I mean, basically, you've got a situation where you... <laughs> Well, not that glorious. I mean, I'm sure I'll make it so, but it's glorious if you're English and Protestant. What is it? I think you, you, I think you might need to just tell us. Yeah, okay, sorry. So James II is um, a firm Catholic and 
this is before the uh, the test text, the Bill of Rights. And so the Bill of Rights is a, is a response to the fact that everybody says, I'm sorry, we've told you before, we don't want a Catholic on the throne. <clears throat> You've just become a Catholic. Uh, so you've got to go, <clears throat> you know, freedom and tyranny and all the rest of it. But out of it comes the Bill of Rights and the Act of Toleration. So it does have an impact on constitutional freedom. In the Bill of Rights in 89, for example, uh, freedom of speech was guaranteed in parliamentary debates. So you could not prosecute somebody in under proceedings in Parliament for something. And that's, that's still used quite a lot, isn't it? Where they can they can insult people. Yeah. yeah, that's still judges also very interesting bit of rights were no longer dismissible dismissible at the pleasure of the king and their paid salaries. I think is it, particularly given the situation with the power of the executive in the UK, it's very important. Okay, so that's the glorious revolution. It's a matter of, of religious tolerance, which comes in 1689, William III. Uh, grants religious tolerance to a degree, which effectively means anybody can practice their religion, but Catholics are still disadvantaged in high office. And the Bill of Rights, which makes a lot of freedoms in Parliament clear. We have our first Prime Minister in Robert Walpole, acknowledged, although it's not a formal position, acknowledged uh, to now be the, our first Prime Minister in fact, de facto. <laughs> but it was a bit of a joke, wasn't it, when they called him Prime Minister? It was sort of, you know, oh, you think you're above yourself. Oh, is that right? Yes, I suppose it could be, couldn't it? Well, a bit, bit of um, bloody hell, Robert Walpole yeah. does everything. Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Yeah. 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 So late 1780s or late 1770s, you begin to get something quite new, which is public radicalism. Most of the rebellions up to the emergence of radicalism are not about revolution. They're not really about enforcing change. They're about conservatism. They're about saying, look, King, You've changed something here. That's not right. So all the Tudor rebellions like um, John Kett's rebellion and Jack Cade's rebellion in 1450, and they're all about saying, look, you landlords, you powerful people, you've changed stuff. We want to go back to the way the life was. Radicalism changes all that. Radicalism say, hey, we want things to be different. We, the people, we want to reform parliament and we want a greater part of this pie. <clears throat> it's quite clear what the limits are still you know you're still talking about people who own property there is a principle that says you don't deserve a vote if you don't have a stake in the country and that means owning property so that's a principle that goes through quite late and william pitt who i think is one of our better prime ministers actually but i know he's a conservative so you probably hate me saying that um he tries to reform right. parliament in a, in a mild way and gets debunked and of course it's him under him that the act of union with ireland happens in 1801 which is supposed to be all tied up with catholic emancipation and then george the third and the uh, go back and the tories go back on the promise and um pitt resigns so look there you've got a, a, a politician of principle in 1829 under the catholic emancipation kerfuffle where again i think there was a threat of creation of peers in that and the great reform act of 1832 badgot writes uh, yeah yeah he writes that the, the king no longer has the power to refuse assent okay so that had been one of the few remaining powers of the king as uh, the hanoverians had basically you know gradually 
conceded um, the power of parliament. Um, and it, it's it's critical now because, you know, people say, what's the power of the, the monarch now? Well, it's to refuse assent. Well, you know, that can't happen. So the through the 19th century, you get a whole load of little piecemeal developments towards extending the franchise um, and making representative government what we think of representative government. I think one of the interesting things about British constitutional history is there's a tendency to think about, oh, it's not real representation, it's not real democracy until we get to one man, one vote, one woman, one vote. And I think that's, again, a teleological view that, in actual fact, people, not everybody wanted or believed in one person, one vote. That was inimical to the way society ran. And when we think about representation, we need to think about its context at the time, that society had a representation, broadly speaking, um, that they thought was appropriate. And the radicals changed that a lot because the radicals changed the dials. So in 1848, you get the great Chartism, uh, movement at the time of revolution all around Europe, and it's a real panicky moment for uh, for the government. But they have it, and they don't don't they don't rub it out. But actually, it's supposed to fail because um, you know they fail to get the law changed in 1848. And what were they specifically trying to get? Uh, well, I I'll get. They have six demands, the Chartists, and the point I was going to make, and I'll find what they are. But the the point is that within thirty years of their six demands, five are achieved by law, and the other one, the um, the sixth one, was potty, which is about having an annual, annual elections. So it actually succeeds. It succeeds in a very British way, that by debate and by protest. Um, and through the radicals saying, hey, we want change. The dial of debate gets moved. You know, for what was completely unacceptable on day A actually becomes, well, everybody believes that now. So they wanted to vote for every man 21 years of age and over. They wanted a secret ballot, which happens by 1872, I think, so that the, you know, the landlord can't come along and say, hey, vote the right way or rent goes up. No property qualification for members of parliament. So, you know, parliament can't continue to be completely dominated by very rich people. Uh, And the fourth was payment of members. So, you know, anybody can become a member of parliament. Equal constituencies. So the constituencies were kind of like, uh, you know, some were 100,000 with one member. Some places Mm. had no members. And the Reform Act had had some impact on that, but not complete. And then annual parliamentary elections, which is just a silly um, idea anyway. So the thing about radicalism is that some of its success, you know, Thomas Paine, you remember the Wilkes and um, uh, all these people, and you think, well, look, actually, isn't the English state just incredibly conservative and doesn't change, just not happen very much? Well, it happens, but it happens slowly. And there is some justice in that statement that, you know, the thing about the British Constitution and Britain is that it changes slowly, and therefore we avoid the revolutions that happen all over Europe through the 19th century. Discuss, but I think there's, you know, there's some justice in it. Anyway, so you get, so then you get the crises at the beginning of the 20th century, the Parliament Bill, 1909, 1911, Asquith and Lloyd George are only Welsh Prime Minister. 
reduce the power of the House of Lords so they can only delay legislation and they can't delete it. And their final, finally, that balance of power has moved away from the House of Lords. Uh, the Irish, Irish Home Rule under the threat of civil war and the, um, the East uh, Rising all delayed because of uh, the First World War. Then in 1922, the Government of Ireland Act starting the process of complete Irish independence. Mm. So 1918, universal male suffrage, men over 21, votes for women over 30. And then in 1921, they say, well, that's a bit daft. So it's everybody over 21. Yeah, that's really not trying, is it? It's like, no, it's <laughs> we're going to make that younger for us, but older for yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, really a bit yeah, Anyway, So yeah. um, there's been obviously quite a lot of change since then. So devolution is the big one, isn't it? We were talking about 1997. And that that's a live issue, isn't it? I think devolution now, and it's very interesting <laughs> about has it worked or not. Um, and we can talk. I mean, what did Boris Johnson say the other day? Yeah, I always thought that it was the, the worst most- thing. Yeah, I always thought that, the most ex- that was the most extraordinary piece of non-news I think I've ever heard. So what, unionists, uh, unionist Tory says he hates devolution. Hmm. Are you, is anybody surprised? Uh, unionist Tory angers uh, the, the Scots even more yeah. so that they want to break free of the union. Yeah, Scots look for events and everything as they have done for the last 300 years. Break the news. <laughs> I mean, against the <laughs> I'm sorry, we've had this discussion before. Fake drives me out the wall. Anyway, there you go. Let's not have that one there. But I mean, there are some really interesting issues, aren't there? So in Brexit, we had the pro- prorogation of Parliament attempt by Boris, which is just a fascinating case study, isn't it? Because <clears throat> here's the danger perhaps, of not having a written constitution, because everything that has happened has happened bit by bit um, under the demands of the time. And I think there's a very big movement that says this is wrong. This is We need to have a written constitution because it's custom and practice which drives a lot of decisions. And it, it doesn't say anywhere in a written piece of paper that the, the government of the day can't perug parliament um outside of the parliament act and without uh, and so therefore we need to have a written constitution in actual fact what happened how, how, how much actually being part of the european union impacted on the constitution because i think that's one of the sort of problems that we might have had with the european union is that we felt that they had it had more influence on britain than it actually did and maybe you know if there was a more clearly written constitution it would be more obvious that actually Europe didn't have that much effect on a huge swathe of our laws like health, education, law. Um, There's a whole load of things that it really had no influence on on whatsoever. And I think it just wasn't clear enough. Actually, that's quite a fascinating point. I think I'm a bit torn on it because I'd say on one hand, the Constitution doesn't define law. You know, common law is defined by precedent and statute. So I don't think a constitution would cover that. But what it would cover is the principle that there is pooled sovereignty, presumably. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure it wouldn't make it worse because that's the thing that people are worried about, isn't it? That people like you and I, I think, say, look, the future is pooled sovereignty and we just, you know, in international organisations are the future especially if we're going to save the planet, we have to work together and 
you know, or I, that's what I believe anyway. That, um, mm. And actually, I think it might make it more obvious. And my argument about the written constitution is that you cannot legislate for everything in a written document. Every, even, I would argue, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that every country in the world that has a written constitution meets situations which are not covered by that constitution. And that amending the constitution is very hard work. Whereas introducing a law to um, address one particular aspect that you've decided needs changing is much simpler. So I would argue hmm. that an unwritten uh, constitution has dangers, but it has that big advantage that actually you can change piecemeal and, and slowly according to the circumstances of the day much more easily than some big attempt to... Um, Amend the constitution. Discuss. Yes, I know because, that, 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 but I mean, well, presumably, the, I mean, the, the American constitution does have a mechanism within it to amend itself. Yes. Um, so I think it, it, you know, the, it, which I think means that it is able to uh, make any changes and react to different circumstances because. You know, I mean, not everything needs to be constitutional. I mean, Americans can can. Uh, create laws and legislate and do all, loads of things without making amendments. I mean, amendments seem to be about much more fundamental things, although some of them are quite, about, I think some of the more recent ones have been about very little minor things. Mm. There have been loads, been about 20 or something since that we just don't know anything about Yeah, um, since the 1970s. 200 years or whatever. Um, 250 years. I, I, I mean, you may well be right. And my knowledge of uh, Ameri the American Constitution is, you know, it could be written on the inside of a ping pong ball. But um, all I can rem you know, the thing that strikes me is this thing about the Equal Opportunities Act or whatever it was called, uh, about equal rights for women, essentially. And the fact that it still hasn't been passed and basically everybody agrees with it, but... You know, it hasn't been passed yet. So I, but that wouldn't be an amendment. I mean, it, that would be a constitutional amendment. All, all, all the equal rights acts that, well, but all the equal rights acts that came out in the sixties, I don't think they were amendments. Okay, well, I mean, in I, fact, I, I think you know they, a lot of those arguments were about the constitution. Okay, so I, I may be arguing out of my my bottom. Uh, uh, I, should, I'll, I won't let. I'll bow to your superior knowledge. Um, but I still think my, <laughs> my point um, stands that I don't think a constitution solves your, all your problems. People like precision, and I think it's a mistake, no. actually. Um, I would go back to my, one of my opening statements and say vagueness is far more uh, useful than precision because if you've got a clear definition of something, you've got to stick to it. Um, and changing it is a problem, and that becomes in itself an argument. So, because uh, I think one of the, the, the another Brexit thing, but um, is you know the Good Friday Agreement, yeah, where you know a, an international agreement has superseded anything that we can do in, uh, nationally. I mean, it's a fascinating situation because, of course, you know we all agree that the last thing on the earth we want to endanger is the Good Friday Agreement. You do not want the troubles back. But we're, it's, we're in an impossible situation. And I mean, the lack of debate was interesting. I don't know whether it would change anything, you know, in the referendum. But, you know, there is no answer to this problem. I mean, there is an answer in the sense of people just blagging it, just um, fudging the issue or trying to fudge the issue by having technical solutions. And that's what the British government, to do them the Jew, have argued all along. 
the people have doubted their ability to implement those technical, you know, those technical solutions of there being a the impression of no border because technology solves it for you. But that is the only answer. You cannot expect, surely, a nation to say, oh, okay, so this part of this nation can hold us all to ransom over a democratically taken decision. You know, that's insupportable, and I can understand why that's insupportable to Brexiteers. On the other hand, the cost of starting the troubles again by having a hard border is insupportable, unthinkable. The only answer is what the the British have been saying right from the beginning, which is that we have to find a... Uh, a solution through technology that makes the border look as though it doesn't exist. I would argue, it. but I mean, I think that 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 sort of shows yes. some of the influence of the yes. EU was. You know, the Good Friday Agreement was signed while both nations were were members of the European Union, so it felt like a sort of fairly sensible yes. solution. Um, and nobody foresaw yes. that, that, that we were going to have to join. Because obviously it would be bloody all. stupid to leave the European um. Union. Um, uh, yes, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that is very interesting. So here we have a situation where European law is fundamentally, well, is this, you know, but, yeah. you know, it's a European agreement, not law. Um, and I think Jonathan Sumption argues, um, I don't know if I've recommended the reflectors to 2019 before, it's very, very good though. So he argues that in actual fact, the amount of impact of EU law on British law is, you know, is inconsequential. But nonetheless, it is there. We yeah. are, Parliament is no longer sovereign. And that is a fundamental prin- principle of our liberal democracy. But that wouldn't you say that also applies to NATO, for example? Because I mean, ac- according to the to the NATO agreements, you know, if one nation is attacked, there all nations have to react. And you know, places like Lat- Latvia are now members of NATO. So, according to the NATO treaty, if Russia attacked Latvia, which is fairly possible, we would all have to go and. You know whether we voted to, to to fight a war against Russia over Latvia or not, we would have to because of an agreement well, because but that's of a only treaty. A treaty. So uh, one of the yeah. principles of the British Constitution is that one Parliament cannot bind the hands of a following Parliament. So where a Parliament has hmm. made a treaty, a following Parliament can withdraw from that treaty. And you know when it comes down to it, the Good Friday Agreement in this Internal Markets Bill. We're all up in arms, but there's no reason why Britain cannot withdraw from the Good Friday Agreement if Parliament votes for it. I mean, what's happening here, obviously, in terms right. of is they're trying to cheat and have it both ways. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, I share what is presumably your fury about what they're doing. But um, in principle, we could withdraw from the Good Friday Agreement. <laughs> and so we could withdraw yeah. from NATO. So in, in yeah. the situation I just gave... If Russia attacked Latvia, we'd have a quick vote. And, and these are all kinds of people who would argue that's exactly what we should have done in yeah. 1914, that none of our essential interests are being threatened by what's happening on the continent. We've yeah. spent a lot of time in previous centuries trying to stay out of conflicts in, in Europe. And Lord Grey took us into the war, essentially, along with the cabinet, because he said that we could never hold our, our heads up again in the face of the world if we didn't stand by our treaties, which is interesting. Anyway, the, the other thing about the prorogation that I thought was particularly interesting was that what is one of the worried things that worries me about this constitution is who is its guardian? So in America, obviously, you've got these famous, much lauded checks and balances. Actually, it looks to me as though 
America is almost in stasis uh, anyway, um, or unable to do anything. But um, And that's what we've always said here. We've said, look, okay, we don't want PR because and all that stuff and uh, because our system, first past the post, gives you stable government and strong executive power. But who guards the guards? Who is it, therefore, then, since the House of Lords no longer does and the monarch no longer does, who guards the constitution from abuse by the executive? And you're left basically with the Supreme Court. But hasn't that just... Yeah. Yes, that's very, but that's very that's recent. That's the interesting thing at the prorogation thing is that however much I worry about what think some clever person called single chamber despotism and the, the absolute dominance of central executive government you know the ex- executive it can't be any other countries well i'm sure there are sort of tyrannies and all the rest of it but any liberal democracies where the power of the executive is so overwhelmingly strong as in the uk and it seems to me that's the fluffed thing about devolution actually that Mm. Far too much of funding comes from central government. At least in Scotland and Wales, they have the Barnet formula, so that's all devolved to them, and they get to spend it. Apart from you know what's still UK. Whereas if you're you know your South Oxfordshire district council or whatever, you ten percent of your revenues are raised by lo- locally. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's no local local government at all, and mm. that used to be one of the driving forces of. In, in Victorian England was the strength of Birmingham and the Chamberlains and Manchester and Liverpool and that pride of local government where they could really do things driven by local decisions. And we've got an absurdly over-centralised system in the UK at the moment and devolution should have included devolution for England yeah. as well as Scotland and Wales. Yes, because we're getting a very weird situation now with, with COVID where you know, you've got a health minister for scotland health minister for wales um and then no one for england because we there's only a health minister for yeah so basically he's split that person's job is split between thinking about england with one moment and thinking about britain for another um and that's insupportable we need we need an english first minister and we need a we need an english parliament in birmingham or manchester or probably loughborough would be a great candidate almost the most obvious site to go indeed obviously yes it's in central country central 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 i mean that's that's my view anyway that um you need somebody thinking about england in the way so you've got somebody thinking about scotland and somebody thinking about wales and this sort of fudge of law english laws for england it just makes the uk parliament look even more dominated by certain And finally, my my last round oh, yeah. is we need to get rid of bloody first pass, first pass the sorting post. I mean, it's a joke, isn't it? I've lived in heavily. For yes. Do you want to explain that just in case? Okay. So we have a system based. What? We have a system based on constituencies and voting for an individual to represent us, and that work. I'm sure that worked in days gone by when we were small enough for, uh, and the structure of society was such that. Um, Personal relationships and hierarchies were very important and very influential. But although, you know, many of those are exploded, you know, we, we still think we're a class-ridden society and to a degree we are, but nothing like um, it used to be and nothing like the system was designed under. So what you get is, uh, for me, you don't know what you're voting for when you're Labour, voting for the Labour Party. And in actual, what's happening at the moment that since... 
since the numbers signing up to become a member of political parties falling very dramatically, what you've got is that the loonies are in charge of each of the parties. You know, the Blue Rinse Brigade in charge of the Tories, <laughs> um, the momentum nutters uh, of far left um, donkey jacket wearers are in command of the Labour Party. And of course, the Liberal Democrats. They were. Know, yeah. Well, they were. They still are. Did you see them? I mean, the, unbelievable people saying, oh, God, this is an outrage. Corbyn being jacked out of the party. I mean, it's just, I know. you know, where is your brain? Anyway, um, and of course, the Liberal Democrats, well, nobody votes for a third party because, you know, you know they're never going to make a breakthrough. So it's a wasted vote, vote. And in... And the Green. And the Green parties. You know, there's so much impetus or potential support for the Green Party, because you know your vote is wasted, they don't have anything like the representation they should have. Yes, I mean, I, th I think it works out that it's 800,000 votes to get one member of parliament from the Green Party yeah. compared to 25,000 or something yeah, for, for a Conservative. Absolutely yeah. Whereas at least in the PR that is used throughout Europe, um, you split up into different parties, but the the experience is that actually you have to create consensus and have a discussion in order to build up consensus across those parties. And you know who you're voting for. You know what they believe because the range yeah. uh, within the, that church is so much narrower. So I think first past the post is a disaster, and I think you can't really change politics without it. Jonathan Sumption's argument is that a broad church is a fundamental aspect of a functioning democracy because within that broad church and within parties, you have to make compromises in order to create your manifesto. And that's where the compromise happens. But then if membership of parliaments is falling, of parties is falling, then you don't have any anymore because it's the lunatics driving the bus. So you don't get any. So you get things like the absurdity of Jeremy Corbyn and the fact that we haven't had an effective... I don't, I don't uh, disagree about the lunatics driving the bus, but I mean, in the case of the Labour Party, I think their membership grew massively under Corbyn. But it's all the loonies that joined. I mean, you've, you also had a process after that of, <clears throat> um, of loads of people leaving the party of the moderates, and hopefully you're getting the same thing now that all the moderates are rejoining and the, the left-wing loonies are leaving. It was a lovely thing about, yeah. you can see the, the NEC, um, if that's what it's still called, the, the executive, national executive of the Labour Party, and um, 13 members left, the, boycotted the meeting, and they said it was the best meeting they'd had for years. <laughs> yeah. Boycotting is the daftest yeah. uh, strategy on earth. Anyway, there you go. anyway, that's me ranting for the centrist point, point of view. Um, but it does seem to me that the British Constitution, there are many, many questions about it at the moment. Um, how do you protect it? Is the Supreme Court good enough? What executive power, it seems to me, is way too strong. We're far too centralised and local government needs more power and our voting system sucks. And there needs to be an English, proper English devolution. Here, here endeth the lesson for the prosecution. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, so are we going to have to debate whether it goes into the, the cabinet or not? We could debate. What do you think? Well, um, I'm thinking that but it doesn't actually exist. So um, <laughs> how could it possibly go in the cabinet if it's a non-existent 
document? Well, it is. A, we do have a British constitution. It's just that it's not written down. Right. But there'll be no, because I think it's something I asked before, is, you know, is there a definition of it? It does seem very nebulous. I'm just trying to make an argument here. Yes, it does. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, no. it is quite new, but but it's um, it's interpreted by the courts essentially. If there's a dispute about what it is, it is laid down by precedent, custom, and statute law, and it is you know that we know what the main element, constitutional elements are: monarchy, parliament, and um, uh, the, the judiciary. You know, I think we kind of know what it is. For me, the only question is whether the different elements have got out of kilter and need updating. I don't feel mm-hmm. that we would solve our problems by having a written constitution. I think we'd create more problems than we solve. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's, it'd be one of those monumental wastes of time as well. God, can you imagine? Oh, wow. Anyway, I think, I mean, it's got to go in. Okay. Um. It's got to go in, surely. I mean, it's the very fundamental thing about... And it's one of those things, actually, that the British have always been very... Or the English as well, in particular, have always been very proud about. Whether they're right to be quite so proud, I don't know. But what you, what it has helped deliver is gradual change without a lot of the violence of revolutions. And I, an age-old problem, actually, that they discussed at the time of Richard II is, um, is it better to suffer tyranny or that people should die in rebellion and that's a, that's a good question isn't yes it? and also i mean you know when you end up with mm-hmm. napoleon out of the french revolution it doesn't necessarily yes, play very well or certainly yeah. if you look across the european revolutions of the 19th century almost exclusively and this is why of course trotsky was killed wasn't it and why you know the likes of lenin talked about and marx talk about permanent revolution is that after the revolution comes a reassertion the middle classes always win um, the forces of conservatism re-established themselves. And that happened time and time again in Europe in the 19th century. So you get death and massive destruction. And then you get a tyrant like you know, Boney. Anyway, I vote go into the cabinet, but we should put it to a vote of the people. Uh, very good, yes. And uh, of course, uh, here on the uh, Facebook site of the Things That Made England, we are very much a one-person, one-vote organisation, and every vote counts. Um, and so we'll pause here for a moment to um, listen to our Facebook roundup from uh, our last show. Gloriana, good Queen Bess, Elizabeth I. Far, far back, virtually last year, Luke and David argued the odds on whether she was good or bad or relevant or not. I began the podcast with Elizabeth I's iconic speech at Tilbury, which was fulfilling a long, long dream for me. Not being at Tilbury, about to fight the Armada, but doing the speech. Then Luke and David swept in and promptly, in very English fashion, apologised to each other. First, David apologised for being brilliant, and then Luke apologised, and then David returned the apology with a few mild insults thrown in. Honestly, you couldn't find a more English way to podcast if you tried. In between the apologies, they discussed Elizabeth I. And all that was missing was Roy Field calling everybody sir. We're deeply aware that you have had to wait patiently for a new show. 
for about as long as Elizabeth's councillors had to wait on her decision on whether she was going to get married. Or not. Or yes. Or no. And who too. But not him. And then her decision on who would succeed her. Maybe James or Arabella or nobody or maybe she'll get married. And for your long, long wait, I apologise. Inevitably, after such a long wait, there was a brief vote and scramble of discussions and we veered off the topic the way you do. Not before we voted, though. There were 69 votes for putting Gloriana into the cabinet, four for no thank you very much, and two for a very non-committal, well, she was all right. So in Elizabeth I goes, cramming her skirts and her wig into what must now be an enormously tight space, right next to Maggie Thatcher. Hmm, that's going to be a bust-up I'd like to witness. They'll be hurling brown sauce at each other within minutes. As I said, underneath the post about voting, there is a brief flurry of comments about Elizabeth I, and then we veered right off topic, and Rowena Card posted a wonderful map of Britain and what the various areas call woodlice. <laughs> there was a big discussion on whether they are roly-polies or slaters or dampers or chuggy pigs. And Jacqueline Berteau pointed out that, according to the map, Lincolnshire and Yorkshire must just call them woodlice. I'll have to message my daughter in North Lincolnshire to ask her what her Yorkshire-born children call them. Alison, for whom they are slaters, suggested we should do a similar map for daps or sand shoes, or what some people call sneakers and others trainers, a plimsoll line. I hope somebody who's clever will get on to it. By the way, for me, they will always be daps. I would be terribly remiss, especially as our subject was Good Queen Bess, if I didn't mention the gorgeous post that Mandy Cheevers shared from another site of our Good Queen Bess rendered as a Christmas tree. It made me feel more than a little inadequate with my decorating. Luke began a post asking folk to show off their trees, so I do hope that you'll get on there and show us your Hanukkah, Christmas, solstice or Kwanzaa displays. That would be fun to see. And we had a very silly time responding to a shared tweet posted by Eric Trometer on whether British people still do the accent when nobody else is around. It got quite daft. And for some reason, we all came to the conclusion we speak like Texans when no one's around. So do jump into the discussion or begin one. We who serve you will do our level best to be better at this and add more podcasts in a more timely manner. Yes, I'm promising that on behalf of the entire team. Until then, I'll end in a traditional English way and say I'm sorry. Sorry? Terribly sorry. Well, I'm sorry. Sorry. Terribly sorry. We, we do have one quite important announcement to make, um, and that is that we have now got a Patreon site, um, and it's uh, patreon.com. Okay. Yeah. As of about three hours ago. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Patreon.com uh, forward slash TTME. Um, and you can join up if you feel that way inclined. And we will be very grateful. Very good. Uh, well, thank you very, very much, David. Okay, we have, we have delighted our audience tonight, yeah, yes. I think that was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Cry God for Harry. And these are the things that made England. England. And St. George. These are the things that made England. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.